Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the History of England. Episode 70, Lords, Knights and Gentry. Last time we had a bit of a rambling chat about the magnates and some of the things that were important to them and so completely fell off the plan. A few weeks ago we looked at the economic changes in the countryside from the point of view of the peasantry, so now I'm going to look at it from the point of view of the aristocracy. Then we'll take a look at some of the broader changes that impact the aristocracy in the period, namely the development of bastard feudalism and the first sign of the emergence of that most English of institutions, the gentleman. OK, so two principles in mind before we get into it, at risk or indeed the racing certainty of repeating myself. Number one, land is king, the ultimate source of wealth, power and security. And number two, price inflation throughout the century, which means fixed rents are bad, therefore take the mainland back into direct management. Just to put price inflation into context, over the period, grain prices grew by something like 50%. Point number one has an important political and social angle, as well as economic. Everyone is out there in a massive bun fight trying to get themselves land. So the 13th and early 14th century includes a rather brutal competitive dance, where everybody's at it from puffed-up magnate to scabrous peasant. The magnates, of course, having power and influence already, are in the best position, and grab up land pretty well. In particular, they buy up debt. Eleanor of Provence, wife of Henry III, does exactly the same thing. They buy up the debt for knights and peasants, from Jews in particular, but also by lending directly. And then, if anyone steps out of line, wham bam, thank you Sam, I'll be having that land please. This most certainly doesn't make the magnates popular. Eleanor of Provence dies unregretted by pretty much everyone who's not called Henry or Edward. But then, none of the magnates were interested in a popularity contest. So no doubt these magnates were deeply cultured, civilised and highly individual people with feelings and vulnerabilities. But if you shook hands with them, you'd check how many fingers you had at the end of it. Here's a contemporary quote. Observe how earls and other magnates of the land, who could live according to their station on their inheritance, regard all their time as wasted, unless they double or treble their patrimony. Wherefore they pester their poorer neighbours to sell what they've inherited. And those who will not be persuaded, they plague in many ways, until they are so straitened that they perhaps offer for a song what they could earlier have sold for a good price. The relevance of this politically is that a fisher will appear in the rebellious barons. In the blue corner are those who, whatever their rapacious, fanatical, self-aggrandizing faults like de Montfort, basically accept that this is a wide reform movement to improve the way the kingdom is governed for the whole community of the realm, and therefore magnates need to put their own houses in order. But in the red corner are those for whom this is, despite the posturing, 
basically about getting rid of the Lusignan, feathering their own nests and controlling a king who is clearly a blithering idiot. If you put the desire for land and price inflation together, many historians say that what you get is something called high farming, which is a term I think I mentioned last time. So this is where you get increasingly large domain lands directly managed with increasing professionalism by career officials. Now, there are a few reasons why people think this happened. Firstly, there's a point about price inflation. The cost of produce goes up, but long-term rents don't, so you're not getting the benefit if you've got a tenant. So get rid of the tenant when you can and manage it all directly. There is a bit of a problem with this theory. So yes, prices undeniably increase, but it's by no means a straight line. So did they really spot the trend? So, for example, the average wheat price, 1200 to 1210 was about £5.15 shillings per quarter. The average price for the following decade was £4.16 and £4.17 shillings in the 1240. So you take the point, actually it looks over quite a long period as though it's gone down. But the trend was pretty clearly upwards, generally speaking, and I'd say give them the benefit. These are bright guys. And as we'll see, they spent much more time analysing data than you'd think. The second reason for moving to direct management was the fear of losing land. By and large, legal changes favoured tenants at this time, so landlords were increasingly reluctant to rent lands out in case they ended up losing them. And as you now know, land is king. Third point is the one we made a couple of episodes ago about increasing commercialisation. Now, there's a more varied economy and a market out there that you can sell to. So, if you were clever, you could make yourself some money and get yourself that new hawk you'd been promising yourself. Or wimple. Whatever. Someone mentioned to me once that the problem of working in academia was brought home to him when he passed two academics in the corridor. As he passed, he caught one of them saying, and ninthly... So, I'll stick to making fourthly my last point. So fourthly, it became easier for lords to run their estates directly because there was a body of professionals there to help them, a cadre of experienced stewards and bailiffs. So we have to ask ourselves, was there a massive transformation in the 13th century that led to much greater wealth? There was something of a management revolution, even if, as discussed, there was not really a technical revolution. Ideas about estate management were written down and shared, and taught in a systematic way. I think we talked about Walter of Henley in the 12th century episode, though not really sure why, since he was writing in about 1280. But anyway, Walter wrote for a student audience, and he was really strong on dung. He was also strong on data, such as how to work out the difference between using oxen or horses for ploughing, and in this way, his book is not just a black box of good practice, i.e. do this, do that. It's also about how to adapt to your own environment. It included nice, handy, ready reckoners. So, 14 gallons of cow's milk should give one stone of cheese and two pounds of butter, that sort of thing. Now, he also spent an awful lot of time showing how to avoid being cheated by your officials, which seems to be a major concern. But it wasn't just Walter of Henley. There were other writers as well, such as the much-mentioned Robert Gross Test, and his straightforward guide to the duties of the various officials and staff. Now you'll be very excited to learn that another great area of improvement... Now you'll be really excited to learn that another area of improvement was in accounting procedures. Yes, I'm going to talk about accounting procedures. 
Be still, my beating heart, and speak on sweet lips that never told a lie. So these accounting texts set standards and yardsticks that allowed managers to measure performance and help improve management. There were different methods, I'm told, the Winchester and the Westminster, and the former compotti designed for small nightly estates. Michael Presswich gives an example for a manor in Hampshire, which effectively shows a 12% margin, and that's after very substantial payments to the Lord anyway, and during a year of serious sheep disease. The details of these originals allowed the Lord not only to understand his business, but to root out any cheating by staff. The provisions of Westminster in 1259, which we'll come to at some point, started to define a process by which bailiffs could be prosecuted, and all of this led to greater efficiency. There is also a move by landlords to move from service to a wage-based approach to labour. Most domain farms would anyway be worked mainly by a group of domain servants, the so-called famuli, who formed the core of the labour force, and usually they'd be paid a wage and an allowance of grain. Many lords came to realise that villain services were not the best way to get things done. They were inflexible, to try and change the smallest thing, and you'd have 100 peasants all over you like a rash. And as we've already seen, the work was much less productive, 30% in that one experiment. Plus, some of the days, called boon days, meant you had to feed the peasants with meat, bread and ale. Now, I remember how I reacted as a student when some company on a recruiting drive offered me free food. I can only imagine how a peasant reacted, and all of this reduced the profitability of the whole transaction. So, the logical response was to change the services to a cash payment, and then hire labourers who would compete to keep the job, could be used when and where needed, and would do away with the massive resentment that came from taking peasants away from their land at harvest time. The upshot of all of this is that one estimate has it that only 8% of tasks on large-scale domains came from tenant labour. The point being that the traditional view of the medieval world as one of unfree peasants working for their lord is at best an oversimplification. It's difficult to say if all of this actually improved farming methods. What's clear is that there's a wide variety of approaches all over the country, and that, as we said a couple of episodes ago, it's wrong to suggest that medieval farming was hidebound and simply did what they'd always done. It's equally wrong to say that there was a general increase in quality. So, ironically, the outstanding examples I'm going to give you now were evidence that greater improvement would have been possible if improvements had been more generally applied. The estates of Isabella de Forts, the Countess of Devon, show that on some manners a grain yield of 1 to 16 was achieved, whereas normally 1 to 4 was considered good. For comparison today, we expect 1 to 25, but it's not really a fair comparison. Another example from the manor of Rimpton in Somerset showed that they managed to increase the rate at which cows produce calves from 5 in 10 to 9 in 10, the number of piglets per sow from 7 to 13. Now, obviously, these are exceptional and wouldn't be achievable everywhere. In Norfolk, as we've already mentioned, they managed to achieve much greater intensity of farming, which meant that the land yielded as much produce as it was to do in the 18th century. So the general picture is that great increases were possible and in some cases achieved, but this doesn't happen everywhere. These large estates produced by high farming also made some early specialisation possible, which probably also improved yields. 
So, for example, in Lincolnshire, some manors concentrated on breeding cattle, then transferred them to others to be brought on. The much often used example is that of Cistercian monasteries and their sheep farming. The Cistercians claimed that they could move into a remote valley and turn it into a productive paradise. And by 1300, there were close to 100 of them, each with about 10 to 20 granges. Each grange was a unit of 300 to 400 acres, with a compact set of farm buildings, much like a modern farm. The labour force was supposed to consist of lay brothers, although later they hired workers instead. These granges acted as consolidators, gathering together the wool produced from other local manors and arranging for the sale. The argument is that Cistercian stood outside the traditional feudal structure of servile labour and lordships, and that they were entirely wedded to the market because they were not producing for consumption, they were producing for sale. That they converted non-productive land, therefore, into productive land. So the argument is that this is a big step forward into organised, commercialised farming. But it all needs to be taken with a pinch of salt, as with so many things in life. The most successful examples of Grange farming rarely took place in what the Cistercians described as desert or waste. Where it did, it often failed, such as Barnswick in the Pennines. This system of lay brothers was actually pretty much the same as servile labour in practice and plenty of the output was consumed by the monastery. In short, the Cistercians' massive wool output was massive and impressive, but didn't really produce progressive techniques that changed practice elsewhere. They did, however, produce the most stunning buildings in the most fantastic landscapes. Even levelled as they were by the dissolution of the monasteries by Henry VIII, sites like Revo and Fountains are absolutely superb, and a must for a visit if you're in the area. So, what's the super summary of all this mind-blowing detail? You should accept that output increased, that different management approaches were tried that led in some cases to dramatic improvements. Equally, this is no green or industrial revolution. There was a large underclass that lived close to the edge at all times. The most advanced farm was vulnerable to disease or bad weather. And in the end, despite all these attempts to commercialise and change practices, 50-60% to 60% of aristocratic incomes remained from rents. So sadly, it's again a question of balance. Improvement, yes. Transformation, no. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. So now then, the last section in this little mini-series will be about how 13th century affected what we might call the gentry, the aristocracy just below the baronage. One study showed that the mean income of the baronage was £115 a year, so we're looking at the lot, with incomes just below that. In a very good book called The Struggle for Mastery, by David Carpenter, he illustrated the changes that affected the gentry by looking at a family in Oxfordshire, the Fitzellis family, and it's a good way to do it, so let's do the same. William Fitzellis's seat was the large manor of Waterbury in South Oxfordshire, it's just off the M40, if you're interested, and there's a nice garden centre there, and the head of the campaign for the protection of rural England. Paul William would either be horrified or amazed, I'm not sure which. 
William also had manors in Buckinghamshire and Wiltshire, and together his income was about 50 quid a year. Okay, this didn't make him a baron, but it did make him pretty well off. So you might consider that the qualification level for a knight was about 15 to 20 pounds, so he's got, you know, way more than that. Fitzellus was a fighting knight. He'd served in Ireland with John in 1210, for example. He had no time to sit around and chill. He attended the Oxfordshire County Court and gave judgments. He sat on common law jurors. He was involved in various local commissions, such as assessing the 1225 tax. Ellis had directly profited from Magna Carta. It helped him recover a manor that John had taken from him. Now, in theory, Fitzellus's boss or lord was Henry Doyley. The Doyley family was a big baronial family in Oxfordshire, but big in this case didn't mean clever, and in fact, in this case it meant incompetent. So, the bond between Fitzellus and Doyley was weak, and Fitzellus was able to act very independently. Families like the Fitzelluses derived their power from their land, their military prowess, and the local offices they held. The successful families maintained their power over several generations, and so it is in this case. One hundred years later, Robert Fitzellus is still Lord of Waterperry, and he also wears the badge, and he also wears the badges of knightly success. He acquired property through marriage, he raised troops for the Scottish Wars, and he worked as the Oxford Sheriff and Escheater. Now, there's a new term there, so I should explain that Escheater is a royal official who takes land back into royal control after it's been legally removed from the family, or maybe because the family line has ended with no heirs. So that's an Escheater. When Robert Fitzellis died, he left all the trappings of the knights too. So there's a nifty little effigy in the local Waterbury church, there's a coat of arms, that sort of thing. You'll notice also, by the way, that Fitzellis has become a solid surname. The last time we talked about surnames, they were a bit more wobbly and they might change from generation to generation. Well, now it's become the norm to emphasise continuity. So this meant either sticking with an ancestor's name, as in Fitzellis, or in sticking with a particular toponym i.e. where the family was from. So just down the road at Rycote is another knightly name, and throughout the 13th century they called themselves Folk of Rycote. So, there's the use of the Rycote toponym, but what you'll also notice is that they keep calling themselves Folk. If you're the son and heir of the Rycote family, Folk is your name. As in, where's Grandpa Folk? Oh, he's out hunting with Folk and little baby Folk. All of which meant it was probably a pretty good job that life expectancy meant that three generations in the same house was relatively rare, otherwise it could get very confusing. But the point is that knightly families were sticklers for tradition. I might just permit myself, gentle listeners, to hammer home the point about land being king again just one more time. Because the key to the success of these families was very much their success in keeping the principal property together in one place. This gave them the same problem we discussed for the peasantry, what to do with younger siblings. Because although primogeniture ruled supreme within the nobility, that didn't make noble parents heartless beasts. They didn't want to just throw their children out onto the muddy tracks. But in minor families, they just couldn't afford to split the place up, because they'd all sink back into the peasant mire, and nobody wants that. So often the best they could do would be to give their children 50 or 60 acres, that really meant that they were no more than substantial freemen, but please don't say that too loudly. But you'll be pleased to hear that our Fitzellis family were able to do better than that. William gave over 100 acres for a daughter as a marriage portion, 
and later Fitzellises were able to give complete manners. So no need for the peasant mire. The same rules about family that we discussed with the peasantry also applied to the nobility. It's a nuclear family structure and generally two generations. But again, you would know who your cousins were and that sort of thing and you'd use their connections to get ahead where you needed. So, you know the thing. Mum, Dad, I really need to get that post as a deputy sheriff. Mm, Okay, son. Well, it just so happens that the wife of our third cousin, Ranulph, knows the sheriff. I'll ride over and have a chat. Or equally, it might be the other way round. Yay! I've just become the sheriff. I need some likely lads to help me who aren't going to stick a knife in my back at the drop of a hat. Hmm, do we wear hats? Tell you what, I'll give the job to my sister's son. If I know Eleanor, he'll be so scared of her, he won't put a foot out of line. So, the extended family was what the historian Holt called a mutual benefit society. Another important factor in the life of the knight was the locality. So, when the wife of Folk II of Rycote gave birth to Folk III of Rycote, Folk II of Rycote hopped around with joy, gave his steward a nice pair of leather gloves and got him to spread the glad tidings. Everything about this emphasises the locality. The glad tidings were spread in a kind of ten-mile radius. Folk's wife came from the locality. He'd married his daughter off in the same area. His stewards and officials were also local. Conversely, if this had been a magnate or a baron, the messages would be going up and down the country to all parts of a widely dispersed honour. So the knights were much more locally based. All of this probably comes as no surprise. Ties of neighbourhood have always been important and family structure was remarkably stable. But the 13th century was in fact one of fundamental change in the structure of the nobility and in aristocratic relationships. So, if I told you that in the 1200s there were roughly 4,500 knights, and that in 1300 that number had shrunk to about 1,250 knights, I can imagine your reaction. You might express surprise, or concern, or even disappointment. Or you might wonder why on earth you were listening to this podcast anyway. Well, the decline in the number of knights, though the figures vary a bit, doesn't seem to be at issue amongst historians. The reason for the decline seems to be more at issue. One major theory is that the knightly class suffers something of a crisis in the 13th century. They fail to cope with the economic changes. Inflation catches them on the hop. They fail to increase their rents or take land back into domain. Their costs of stuff like armour increase. They're continually hammered by central government to do more jobs and they get into debt. And meanwhile, they have those hideous magnates circling like great white sharks, snapping up their debt and using it to take over their land. Along this theme, quite a few books use the same example, about a chap called Stephen de Chenduit. Stephen de Chenduit was a lord with lands in Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire. And unfortunately, Stephen got into debt, and he owed 55 quid to Abraham of Berkhamsted. He deserted to de Montfort in the rebellion, and de Montfort, as you may know, was no friend to the Jews, so he simply pardoned the interest of the debt. But unfortunately, the principle itself was too much, and Stephen ended up selling up to Walter of Merton. But there are loads of other examples to be found of knightly failures. So there was the family that was forced to sell up to their local monastery in return for a poxy cottage and free board, 
in the village of Insham, where once they'd been the top dog. Now that must have hurt. Or there was Eustace de Derville, who started with a full manner and ended up with rent worth 6p, a pound of cumin and a pair of white gloves. He finally ended up on the gallows, which must have hurt even more. The thing is, though, that for every story of failure, there is a corresponding story of success. We've talked about the Nivertons, who rose from peasants to knight. The Thorpes were villains at the start of the 13th century, but rose through service to Peterborough Abbey and through the law, until they became substantial freeholders and built a manor house. In 1309, Robert Thorpe became steward of the Peterborough Estates and added a whopping three-storey tower to the manor house. Robert's son became a judge, and his grandson achieved the height by being a wealthy and corrupt judge. At this point, also becoming knights. Another example, a chap called John Stoner, who rose through the law, became a justice, bought land, managed them well, and ended up with 11 manors and other estates. So you take the point. Some people are on the way up, while the others are on the way down. So what really seems to be going on here is that becoming a knight is increasingly hard work. They are becoming the fulcrum of royal government in the shires. There were a plethora of new officers, which sometime we'll go through, by the way. So there were coroners, keepers of the peace, as cheaters, assessors, collectors of taxation, justices of assizes, jail delivery, jurors. I mean, it's a full-time job, not just a matter of wandering round on a Thursday morning, collecting your rents and heading off for a bit of light hunting or peasant oppressing. So actually what's happening here is not that the knightly class was hurting in the 13th century. What really happens is that only the richest of the gentry, men like our mate William Fitzellis, could be bothered to go through the knighting ceremony and formally become knights. The rest just ducked. It was all way too much like hard work. In addition, those families that did become knights acquired a lot of independence from their lords, just like William Fitzellis and his increasing independence from Henry Doyley. And in many other cases, it's exactly the same story, as feudal ties weaken and law tends to favour the tenant. So, those 1,250 knights become the real leading lights of the county and the locality. They even acquire a nickname, the Buzones, or Big Shots. They have the money and ambition to take part in the game. They become the genuine representatives and leaders of the community of the Shire, and they're absolutely essential to the king. The king can't govern without them, so one historian uses a nice phrase that these knights achieve self-government at the king's command. Now, that's a story that varies from place to place. In some shires, there'd be a magnate too dominant for this to happen. But in many areas, it does indeed happen in this way. And so we see the first suspicion of the emergence of other classes within the gentry. At the top, we have knights. That's fine. Everyone understands who they are. But then we've got this sort of affluent lot who aren't called knights because they haven't gone through the ceremony. You couldn't describe them as middle class and in fact don't even think of calling them middle class in their presence, otherwise you'll be supper. They're definitely part of the feudal society and definitely describe themselves as aristocrats. But how should they be addressed? What's their role? And so we get the phrase gentleman appearing and indeed we'll get the term esquire. These are really 14th century terms and developments but they derive from the changes in the 13th century. One more point, though, about our knights or buzones. 
You can see, can you not, why the composition of Parliament just has to change. The key agents of royal power are now partly the sheriff, but mainly the knights of the shire. Without these guys, everything falls to pieces and turns to poo. So, it's a two-way thing. The king needs to have some contact with them to understand what's going on. And he needs to schmooze them and communicate with them so that they do what he wants them to do. And so they need to be in Parliament. I have one more thing to cover this week and then hopefully we'll be back next week to the main narrative, which you've probably all forgotten, but is in fact the rebellion against Henry III. So my one more thing is the arrival of the attractively named bastard feudalism. Now, as you... Now, as you appreciate, this is a phrase used by historians rather than contemporaries, and I swear you will not read a single history book where the historian concerned will not put it in quote marks and decry its use, and then proceed to use it. But you can understand why. Bastard is not a word my granny would have used, and it sounds like a degradation of the feudalism that's gone before, whereas in fact these changes are simply an adaptation to reflect new circumstances. It used to be that bastard feudalism was assigned to the 14th century, but it's been recognised as happening earlier and earlier. What it basically says is that the pure feudalism of Billy the Conch is no longer either driving the bus or particularly relevant. There are three broad things that happen and change. Firstly, lords can't afford to be stuck with dud household knights and servants. So, they employ who they like to be in their retinue, rather than just those who are their tenants. We've seen this already, actually, haven't we? As early as William the Marshal, who had a number of household knights who were not tenants. In fact, 12 of the 18 knights who were closest to him weren't his tenants. The second feature was that great lords tried to bring into their circle the men that the king had appointed to run local offices, and therefore who were influential and powerful. If they didn't do that, magnates just might find that they had to do what the king said, or in fact that little tick of a sheriff. And we couldn't have that now, could we? So, although in theory it was a good thing that the sheriffs are now man of the shire and not the magnates' own appointees, it also makes them vulnerable to the magnates shuffling up to them and suggesting they might like to be retained for a substantial honorarium, no questions asked, no what I mean, gov. Which is what frequently happens. And finally, the third feature of bastard feudalism is that rewards took the form of payments rather than land. Because land is now in increasingly short supply, it's all spoken for already. And as we've seen, magnates are now having servants who are indentured to them, rather than being given land for service. With all of this, the basis of society remains very similar. It's still about personal relationships, lordship and land. But whereas in 1215 it was the lay and ecclesiastical magnates who were responsible for taxation and decisions about government, in the 1250s, even before the rebellion, the king had realised the need to broaden the community of the realm and to have a direct relationship with his undertenants, i.e. the knights of the shire. And so, the feudalism of later medieval England will be much more fluid, with a much more independent gentry able to play their own role. And so we come to the end of another episode. Next week we will, as I say, get back to the main narrative, or we will to a degree. I realise that I haven't done a very good job of introducing Edward who is already playing a part in the politics of the realm. So we'll introduce Edward, and we'll take us on just a bit from Oxford and those provisions of 1258, which by now, of course, you've all forgotten. So thanks, as ever, for taking the time to listen. Thank you for your comments on the website, email and Facebook. It's been a good week for comments, which is very nice. Good luck, everyone. 
and have a great week.